Boy, we have a lot of people traveling today. We do. So I'm gonna need lots of feedback from this little cluster in the back corner, okay? I'm gonna need volunteers to read verses, passionate responses, lots of excitement, all right? Let's turn to Esther, back to the book of Esther. So, we're at the point of the annihilation of the Jewish people, and uh, Esther has been told by her uncle, Mordecai, you need to go in and talk to the king. And again, you'd think that that wouldn't be that big of a deal because she was married to him. Go talk to your husband. But again, the king had not called her in 30 days in the Persian Empire. If you walked into the king unannounced, it was a death penalty, even for his wife. Um, wow, that would not be a very fun situation, right? I'll ask, I wouldn't say ladies, but there's just one in here. Um, imagine if uh, you walked in unannounced to Will and he could have you executed and he actually would use that right. What a, what a mess that would be. Um, so being a queen, I don't think was all it was cracked up to be. But of course, Mordecai says to her, in chapter 4, verse 14, he says, if, you, if thou altogether holdest to thy peace at this time, then thou sh- then so their enlargement and deliverance arise of the Jews from another place, which says God's going to deliver us regardless. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's the kind of the pivotal and key text in the book. And again, does that, does that concept of you are here for such a time as this, does that only apply to Esther? Does it only apply to Esther? Does it only matter if you're a queen? I mean, can you and I say that God put us here in this city in the year 2020, in the middle of COVID-19, wearing a mask, that God put us here for such a time as this? Can we say that? We can. By the way, do you guys hear what's going on in California? The church is there. The... uh, you know, I have my differences with John MacArthur down there, but he's taken a stand and said, okay, you're, you're done telling us we can't meet. We're meeting anyways. Well, now L.A. County has slapped him, threatening him with a fine of $1,000 a day and jail time. Um, so it's going to become this big legal battle. But it, it's just the, the irony is they're, they've released 8,000 criminals in the county so they don't get COVID behind bars. And now they're threatening to jail pastors. Um, this, you know, some of these things are knocking at the door. But again, we can't romanticize the idyllic past of America. God's put us here. If the best time for me to live was 1952, I would have been there. I wasn't. I'm here. So, all right, we were talking last time, though, about e- Esther's courage, what it would take. What's courage? Come on, son. Give me a definition. Can't hear you. Say what? Turn up the volume. So it's not it's not the absence of fear, is it? It's it's what's in control. We have to, I guess, remember. In fact, we're going to be talking about it here in Romans seven soon. But our resident sin nature is always going to fight us, and even when we try to do good. So fear is going to be a companion most of the time whenever we're trying to do something right. There's going to be fear. But we have a choice whether or not to yield to that or uh, to do the will of God, whatever that is. God calls us to do things that require courage. Even just living, sometimes just being a bold witness to family, coworkers. Uh, drawing a line in the sand and saying something when we ought to. 
And we face some of the same barriers Esther did, a love for comfort, fear of loss. They kind of go hand in hand. And so Esther's at the point of weighing. If I just say nothing, it might, it might go okay. Mordecai would disagree with that. He said, you and your father's house is going to be destroyed. But Esther is probably thinking, well, I might be fine. Why rock the boat? If, if I can't change it anyways, why do anything? Why not just float, leave it the way it is? And so she's weighing, do I want to step, do I want to wade into this pool and suffer affliction? Or just leave things alone? And again, many in, many in the past have had to face that. Moses did. Moses could have kept his mouth shut in Egypt and just stayed. He didn't have to go out and suffer affliction with the people of God. He didn't have to. Um, Paul, of course, turned his back on Phariseeism and didn't just quietly turn his back on it like Nicodemus seemed to. Paul came out loudly against it. So Esther, of course, in uh, chapter 4, verse 15, Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. <coughs> go, excuse me. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, the palace city, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. So will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she reached the point of saying, I'm going to do right even if it means death. But she asked them to fast. Um, the number of Jews in Shushan, by the way, the palace city was probably large. Later on, they would kill 300 of their enemies. You see that in uh, Esther 9. And again, let me point out, even when Esther says, fast for me three days, the Jews always connected fasting and prayer. Prayer, it's interesting, prayer, she doesn't say fast and pray. And uh, why not? Well, I think that's in keeping with one of, the, one of the central lessons of the book is God working behind the scenes, and he's not directly mentioned. He's not directly mentioned here. You would think Esther would say, let's fast and pray to God. She never says that. It's implied, but it's not said. But I would contend that the Jews would not fast for without prayer and that it would be useless to do so. There's no merit in it. So it's obvious the, the, the intent was, let's take this before the Lord. Um, so what did Esther, what was she showing to God by taking three days for fasting? What did that show? Faith, okay? It showed very good faith. What else? What about dependence and understanding that definitely faith, God can move this mountain, but also she could not. We're pinned here. She's saying. We, we, we're stuck. We don't, I don't think we like being in those situations where God is the only way out. Um, it was, uh, I think me and the missionary were talking about it when he was here last week, that it was C.T. Studd, the missionary, used to say, I like to get in tight places with God. And he wasn't saying I like to provoke or tempt the Lord, but he was saying I like walking into those situations knowing it's either God or total collapse. We, by nature, resist that. And God in His goodness will bring us to those places. Kind of like the Red Sea experience for the Jews where they were pinned in. They didn't ask for it. God just put them there. Uh, and He does that to us sometimes. And Esther was there. Like others before her, Esther was willing to sacrifice her life. She overcame her lack of courage and love of comfort and took a stand. Her words are reminiscent of Job's statement. Though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. And what Paul said in Acts 20, but remember Paul's going to go to Jerusalem and uh, they're begging him not to. And he says, I'm going. 
And he says, in fact, the prophet even comes and says, no, 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 you, you, whoever wears his girdle is going to be bound. And Paul said, <laughs> none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. My life isn't precious to me, he's saying. Only God. All right, now what, what fears keep us sometimes from standing for and obeying God? What kind of fears? What kind of things do we fear? Judgment. What's that? Judgment. Judgment from other people? Yes. People getting mad and misunderstanding? That never happens, does it? What else? Do you ever, uh, you ever fear you won't do things quite perfectly? That, uh, well, if I, if I do this or that, it won't be quite right. So I should probably wait until it'll be quite right. But I think we find that it's never quite right, is it? Um, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be careful, but we can't let the fear of not getting it perfect stop us from going forward because we're never going to get it perfect. It's interesting. The Lord sent the disciples out, sent them out, and then he brought them back for more instruction. They sent them out again. And uh, remember, these were the guys that were asking to call fire down from heaven to incinerate people. I was, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? <laughs> well, they were a little off in their thinking. Uh, by the way, that's one of, I think one of my, uh, I, I enjoy biographies, but one, I think one of the, my favorite things about them is it shows God using flawed people. And it doesn't, again, it, it, it balance here, it doesn't excuse known error, but God has always used deeply flawed people. I mean, God has used guys that had some... <laughs> I think of guys like John Wesley. He's probably one of my favorite examples to use. He was very wrong in some things. And he could really be a jerk. He really could. But John Wesley, there's 5,000 people buried around him. That uh, They heard him made a, make a statement one time that when he goes up in glory, he wants to go up with the children, the spiritual children God's given him. Based on that statement, 5,000 people had themselves buried around Wesley when they died because they felt like they owed their, uh, humanly speaking, their spiritual life to him. Um, I think of the men, Jeremiah's read the book, with uh, Facing the Giants. It's kind of a man, not Facing the Giants, no. Last of the Giants. Yeah, totally different. It's a manly book. It's about these guys that preach in the lumberjack camps. Did they have some flaws? <laughs> it had some flaws. If you ever read it, you got to see what I mean. But in some of the stuff you're going, I cannot believe the guy did that. Um, but yet, they love these people. God used them. And so we can't let a fear of not getting it quite right. Uh, believe me, when you preach consistently, uh, you don't get it quite right a lot of the time. Uh, So one of the most famous martyrdoms in history is that of Polycarp. Polycarp of Smyrna, famous name. It's AD 155. On a festival day, the Romans seized Polycarp. They gave him a choice. Worship Caesar or die. And he says, 80 and six years have I served Christ and he's never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So they start the fire. And as he approaches the flame, he says, It is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come do your will. Imagine these Romans watching that happen. And as he burned, he prayed, I thank thee 
that Thou hast graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion of the number of the martyrs in the cup of Thy Christ. What a way to depart the world. Proverbs 29.25 tells us that the fear of man brings a snare and then tells us about the benefits of trusting in the Lord. And again, one has to be replaced with the other. Fearing men, it, is a, it brings a trap. And uh, I don't know if you found the fleshly reaction generally. Anything I'm supposed to obey in, especially something difficult, immediately what's the, the, the arrow that's thrown at me is fear. You'll fail. They won't listen. It won't be quite right. Fear comes. It's a snare. Who wants to read Deuteronomy 31.6? Will, will you read that? Alright, so that that's that's given to the Jew. Um, can I claim that promise? Does that does that apply to me, a New Testament Gentile? What do you guys think? It does. Um, timeless truth about God's characters. Does God ever forsake his people? There ever been people, true people of God, that He's just forsaken? No. Uh, you may have heard me say this before, but I think it's a helpful analogy. God's treatment of the Jews as a whole, as a nation, in many ways mirrors His treatment to us as individuals. Now, individual Jews rejected God and went to hell. They weren't God's people in the sense that they were saved. They were, they were justified. But God's covenant promise with the nation... I will do this. I will do this. The same covenant promises He makes with us as far as taking away sin and making us His sons and daughters. So yes, we can claim a promise like that and say it's God's nature to not forsake me. It's God's nature to not turn His back on me and just leave me hanging. He goes before us. He doesn't fail. He doesn't forsake His own. Alright, so here comes Esther, chapter 5. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. The king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand, so Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, what wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be given thee to the half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day into the banquet that I prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, and he may do that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom, it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king has said. So Esther follows through on the commitment. In the third day of the fast, she presents herself to the king and it sets in motion this flurry of events that God providentially uses to accomplish His purposes. So the third day, she puts on a royal apparel. She enters the king's throne room. And just like God does with every ruler, He holds his, the king's hand or the king's heart in His hand and turns it whithersoever He will. So providentially, God moves this king to be... You know, it was largely subject to the king's mood, whether or not he wanted to kill you. If he was having a bad day, well, you didn't have the option to call in advance and say, say, 
what kind of mood's the king in today? Would you, on a scale of one to ten, what would you put it? About a four? I think I'll wait till tomorrow. So, you had no way to know that. Nahasuerus extends to Esther the golden scepter. She steps forward and touches the top of the scepter, accepting with gratitude the king's reception, and what a relief. Isn't it true sometimes that we think that courageously obeying God always leads to trouble and dissatisfaction? Sometimes we can get the idea that if I obey God, all it's going to bring is difficulty. Does difficulty come? Yes. Comes the loss too. Does God give difficulty to the believer? Yes. Does God only give difficulty if we serve Him? Is it just a miserable life? I think young people sometimes get that perspective somehow. If I serve God, it's going to be a miserable, mundane drudgery. And so I've got these two choices. I can either be happy or I can be miserable the rest of my days because God just wants to kill my joy and take away my passion and make me hate life. <laughs> what, a, what a slander on God. It's not true. Again, that's the devil's lie. So we value comfort. We try to protect it. We sometimes forget His goodness. And sometimes we think it's better not to upset our life by courageously obeying Him. Maybe sometimes don't witness because it might cause tension. Might not. <laughs> Have you, any of you found that sometimes you open your mouth that the Lord opens the door to speak to somebody? And rather than getting angry, it happens to be at that time where they're very, very receptive. God can do that. In reality, when we neglect to obey Him, we're missing out on life's greatest blessings. And uh, how does... Boy, I don't even... I'm going to read this question anyways. I'm not sure I like it very much, but... How does a believer feel after courageously obeying God? I don't want to trust our feelings too much, but isn't it true when you've done right, though, there is a sense of joy, contentment, of knowing that we please the Father? In fact, keep your finger there, would you? And turn to Acts 16. Acts 16. Go ahead. Acts 16, verse 22, Paul and Silas are accused. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates, now, now think of this, rent off their clothes. So they're publicly accused. And here they are in the town square and all their clothes are just ripped off in front of everybody. Well, that's fun. And then it gets better. And commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stock. So he throws them in the darkest dungeon he can get, and as if they're not miserable enough being chained up, he sticks them in the stocks where they can't move. And then something strange happens. Verse 25, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Of course, you know the rest of the story. In this case, God's going to send an earthquake. But, you think, I mean, you're a prisoner in there, you're locked up for some crime you committed. And here comes these two characters. Word spreads. Why are they in here? Well, they're accused of doing this and that and teaching things the magistrates don't like. And here they are, bloodied and beaten and half-naked, locked in the stocks. They're singing. What in the world are they singing about? Singing praise to God. And by the way, I don't think this was manufactured. Hey, Silas, let's act happy. There was a real joy 
having done the will of God. There was a residing joy in that, that they knew they were pleasing Him. And they knew they could be delivered from this too. Okay, back to Esther. You know that, again, I've mentioned recently, I think that the, the song is simple words, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Simplistic, but it's true. It's true. Happiness sometimes can elude us if we're not obeying in known areas. It's just, it's withheld. Now, Esther was probably overwhelmed with emotion. Her fears are alleviated when the king accepted her. Not only did he accept her into his presence, he offered to grant her request up to half the kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that, and you know what I'm thinking? There's your opportunity, right? I, I mean, at first I read that, I'm thinking, you heard him. I'll give you half the kingdom for the asking. Okay, I'll take half the kingdom. Right? Strike while the iron's hot. Doesn't that make logical sense? And then my half of the kingdom, I'll protect the Jews. Honestly, I'm not sure. Did she fear that was just an emotional response from him? It kind of reminiscent of uh, Herod, right? <laughs> Sometimes a king could be so moved he'd say something like that. Why, what do you think? Why, why wouldn't she just say, okay, give me half the kingdom? Anybody, anybody want to venture? I don't know. Not sure. Um, I guess I'm not the only one. <laughs> so assuming that the king would have assumed the matter must be urgent for Esther to risk her life. And the king's eager to meet her need. So apparently, though, during her days of fasting, I, that statement probably surprised her, but during these days of fasting and prayer, Esther had planned how to approach the king concerning the matter. So she requests the king's presence at a private banquet and asks Haman to join them. And for some reason, she determines the first banquet wasn't going to be the best time to make her request. She doesn't say, well, let's have a banquet and I'll ask. She says, let's have a banquet. And then at that banquet, she asks him to come to another banquet. Uh, there's some that say, well, she's tempting fate by postponing her request. I, I don't, I'm not going to say that. I don't know. Others suggest she didn't have the sufficient influence with the king yet. She didn't think she did. I don't know. But maybe she just thought, this is success enough for one day. Let's leave it. I don't want to push it. So God has a purpose, though, in the delay. A purpose that becomes obvious as the next day unfolds. So Esther had faced her fear. She acted in faith. She discovered God's faithfulness. She soon is going to discover how truly faithful uh, God is. And again, courage is acting in the face of fear. If, you know, what if I just say, oh, I'm going I'm to wait for the fear to go away. I'm not going to do this or that until I'm not afraid of it anymore. And I'm just going to wait for fear to go away. Will it? No, because I'm yielding to fear. All right, I'm not talking about walking a tightrope over Niagara. I hope you fear that. Okay, there, there's such a thing as good fear. Um, but fears that aren't from God, we just wait for them to go away. They're not going away because we're yielding to them. So typically that gets in the way of obedience because the Lord hath not given the spirit of fear. It's interesting, even, uh, again, it amazes me in the New Testament, I'll talk about another one in the morning service, but in the New Testament, especially who God uses to say what and who those things are said to. You know, Timothy, Paul said of Timothy, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Of all the companions Paul had, Timothy was the most like Paul. Timothy apparently was the most trusted. He was the one Paul felt like he could put in charge of the most. And yet, Timothy goes to Ephesus. He's given this monumental task of dealing with the fake teachers there. 
and he's young, relatively young, even though he's probably in his 30s, but Paul references his youth. And he tells Timothy, the Lord hath not given the spirit of fear. In other words, Timothy struggled with that. When Timothy left Paul and went to Ephesus, he was afraid. He was afraid. And uh, Paul told him, teach no other doctrine. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He was to solidify that church in doctrine. It's interesting, if you go to the letters in Revelation 2 and 3, the first church is Ephesus. Now it's fast-forwarding ahead of when Timothy was gone, but remember what they're commended for? Their solid doctrinal stance. So Timothy apparently had carried out his charge. Um, even though they were lacking in some other areas later on. So, all right. <laughs> the perils of pride. Oh, Haman's a character, isn't he? This is an account from the Los Angeles Times from several years ago. Okay, picture this scene. This lady gets in an accident. A screaming woman trapped in a car dangling from a freeway transition road in East Los Angeles was rescued Sunday morning. The 19-year-old woman apparently fell asleep behind the wheel about 12.15 a.m. The car, which plunged through a guardrail, was left dangling by its left rear wheel. So you picture that? The car busts through the guardrail and goes off an overpass and is hanging by one wheel off the overpass like this. Just dangling. A half dozen passing motorists stopped, grabbed some ropes from one of their vehicles, tied the ropes to the back of the woman's car, and hung on till the fire units arrived. A ladder was extended from below to help stabilize the car while firefighters tied the vehicle to tow trucks with cables and chains. Are you picturing all this? Every time we would move the car, said one of the rescuers, she'd yell and scream in pain. It took almost two and a half hours for the passers-by, the California Highway Patrol officers, tow truck drivers, and firefighters, about 25 people, two and a half hours, to secure the car and pull the woman to safety. The L.A. County Fire Captain Ross Marshall recalled later, he said, it was kind of funny, as the whole time she kept saying, I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. I got this. I'll do it myself. It seems kind of amusing, but it, it kind of shows the meaning of pride. The proud heart says, I can do it myself. I'm good. I got this. Any minute here, I'm going to get right back up on the road. It's just a temporary offset. I don't need your help. I don't need help from anyone. And it reflects an independent spirit that shows no regard for or need of anyone else, including God. Now, while we would probably never flatly say we don't need God, it's, it's sometimes we act independently of Him and His Word. I mean, how often can we make plans without Him? Or rob Him of the glory that belongs to Him alone? And pride is definitely a continual battle. And this next lesson definitely emphasizes that. Now, let me, let me ask another difficult question. Why is pride such an offense to God? I don't know that it's just one thing, but why, why do you think pride is such an offense to God? What's that? It's putting us above Him. Okay? That's, that gets right to the heart of it. What else? Come on, son, the wheels are turning. I can hear them. No? Come on now. Let's hear it. Profundity is on the way. I think that kind of cuts to the heart of it. It's... Remember where pride started in the universe? <laughs> who, who said, I will be like the Most High? Isaiah 14. Lucifer said that. It's interesting. God's hate list. I, I don't think... If you and I were given the task, we didn't know the Scriptures very well, and we're given the task, all right, 
These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. Now I want you to line up seven things that you think are, are, are God's hate list. Which one would we pick number one? Without divine revelation, I wouldn't say pride. But that's number one. A proud look. A disposition that essentially is saying, I will be like the Most High. I, I want to rule. And why, does, why must pride lead to a fall? Why, why does it have to lead to a fall? Pride goes before destruction, but why? Why does it have to? If it didn't, what would that show? That it's okay to challenge God's dominion. I guess we're many gods also. It has to end in failure. Now, it may be decades of it, but it will. It will lead to a fall. Now, of all the sins men and women have struggled against, pride's the greatest. Pride's been called the parent sin. I think that's an excellent name for it. You think of what what makes creatures think they can get away with things or think that they can run the universe better or think that they're able to do what they're not? It all comes from pride. It all comes from, I know better than God. And out from that comes anything. Murder, blasphemy, adultery. All of that comes from pride. And the first sin in the universe, pride. Pride. Jeremiah, would you read Psalm 10.4? 10.4, buddy. Psalm 10.4. Wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek God. So... He's got life in the universe figured out, right? Um, by the way, what uh, if somebody's wrong on that, what can they be right on? And practical issues, they can know how to fix a car, and you know, they can know how to treat illness and. On a human level, you can have some measure of wisdom even rejecting God, but as far as what makes life tick, as far as what really matters, as far as, you know, everybody likes to talk about core values today, as far as core values, you can't have them. It's not possible. Those things are rooted in who God is. By the way, that's why our school systems have become brainwashing centers because they're communistic, humanistic, anti-God institutions now. That's what they've become. And they've been that way for a while. Uh, what place does God have in the proud person's life? What place? None or even worse? You're right. None or what? A second or how about... Uh, let me put it this way. You ever see video footage of one of these these little rock scar guys? They weigh about 104 pounds, a skinny, scrawny dude, you know? And what are they surrounded with when they go anywhere? Bodyguards. Big dudes. Hey, Bruno, break his legs. They may not be as strong as that bodyguard, but that bodyguard does what they say. They're in charge. And they'll call him when they need him. Many view God that way. Utilitarian. I will call Him. Hey, you just hang out and wait. When I need you, I'll let you know. And then you can have the privilege of stepping in to help me out of my problems. That's the other way. So God is either unimportant or God is my genie in a bottle. So 
especially true of the humanist movement that basically says they believe God, but then takes credit for their success. I did it. It's me. So Haman experiences the tragedy of a heart filled with pride. (laughs) He has this personal conflict with Mordecai and vengeful prejudice against the Jews, and he plans the destruction of an entire nation. So Esther is going to take action to intercede on behalf of her people, and she gains an audience with the king and waits for the best time to make her request. And basically what you see is that it's like we're privileged to view God's net is starting to draw. It's starting to surround this guy. And he doesn't see it. Pride is, by the way, pride is a huge blinder. A blinder. Uh, I remember early in my Christian life wondering what in the world can possibly motivate the devil How can he stay motivated to do what he does? He knows God always wins. He's never seen him fail once. Ever. Ever. What motivates him? It comes down to one thing. Pride. Pride is a blinder. He actually thinks he's going to win. He actually thinks, and remember from his perspective, if God fails one time, he loses his throne. Once. So he thinks he's going to win. And men filled with pride are just offspring of the devil. That's, that, that's their, like their father. Look at this, uh, verse 9, chapter 5, verse 9. Imagine being a friend with this clown. How would you like to have a friend like this? Then went Haman forth that day, joyful with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved against him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for friends, his friends and Zeresh's wife. So he gathers his circle together, wife, family, friends. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king under the banquet that she prepared but myself. And tomorrow I'm invited unto her also with the king. So he actually gathers them together to brag about, let me just tell you how great I am. Come on, y'all want to come celebrate Haman with me? This will be, be good fun. Now again, I uh, have to ask the question, why? who would be friends with that guy? Well, why are people friends with people like this today? Money. Remember, Haman's wealthy. Very, very wealthy. And there's a lot of people in the world that like leeches latch on to the wealthy and like they're lackeys. And they, they it's, it's, it's a funny relationship to me and I've seen it, I've watched it for years in different forums. You got this wealthy guy who always loves to talk about himself and worship himself, but he can't really worship himself without a circle of lackeys. And so he condescends to allow these lackeys and mooches around him, and he helps support them, and they get the privilege of being with Mr. Rich Guy, and he gets the privilege of having these guys fawning over him all the time, and so they just continue like that. Uh, you see these guys in the NBA, they, have, they all have a circle of cronies like that that follow him around and fawn over him. Uh, Clients that my dad has had at his business, I've seen the same thing. Very wealthy guys, and they have these people, oh, yes, sir, oh, yes. And here's a guy that all he does is talk about himself. All he does is brag about himself. So human nature doesn't change. But look at this. Even in that, verse 13, yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. I can't enjoy all this glory of mine as long as Mordecai is living because he will not bow to me. So i got to kill him. And uh, here comes his wife. Then says Zeresh's wife and his friends unto him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. All right, how tall is that? 50 cubits, roughly. Foot and a half a cubit, so 75 feet. All right. What is that ceiling, about twice me reaching, you think? 16-ish feet, maybe? So, about five times that high. Imagine a gallows that tall. 
I mean, how, how many feet does it take to hang a guy? Well, his height plus about two, and, and you're good. 75 feet. So Mordecai wants to hang this guy from the equivalent of a seven-story building for everybody to see. Or, or Haman wants to do that to Mordecai. And the thing pleased Haman. Like it says, he, uh, he, they tell him, make the, make the gallows, then go merrily with the king into the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. So he has his bragging party. He builds the gallows. And... Uh, But the smallest needle has a way of bursting the biggest balloon, doesn't it? <laughs> he, just, he just can't stand Mordecai not worshiping him. Now, are there any historical figures that remind you of Haman? He's not unique. Can you think of any? In and out of Scripture. What are some guys kind of like Haman? The colossal ego willing to kill. I mean, was, was Herod like that? Remember Herod, he's making this oration to the people, and what are they saying? It's the voice of a God and not a man. It says the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. He was eaten of worms and he died. Now the commentary we get is that the Lord judged him. Those surrounding wouldn't have known that. I doubt they said, hey, God, the axe fell on this guy. He just, he died. He was smitten with some kind of illness and died. Uh, Adolf Hitler. I mean, did he have a mini kingdom for a while? Did he, by the way, he was permitted to do what, what Haman wasn't. Six million Jews. Imagine being responsible for the slaughter of six million people let alone the whole war, 75 million total that he started. But actually gassing and burning 6 million people. But then how did it end? A poison pill in a bunker? Or uh, Saddam Hussein? Any of you remember, how old would you have been when Saddam was captured? Remember that? You remember that when that happened though? Uh, George Bush, not not Junior, but H.W. Uh, Bush went in and actually conquered Baghdad, which the first Bush didn't. They didn't get that far. And remember Saddam Hussein's multiple palaces, ruling his own kingdom, ruthless, ruthless dictator. His two fool sons, Uday and Kusai, or however their names were, they were missled to death in one of their palaces. But here's Saddam, this braggadocious... Saddam Hussein tried to, he tried to rebuild Babylon, which is in Iraq, with every brick stamped with his name. He thought he was, he thought he was another Nebuchadnezzar. And I remember the footage, and they found him. They dig out this guy. He looked like a homeless guy he rolled out of a dumpster. And they find him buried in a foxhole, and he comes out with his hands up, and he says, I'm Saddam Hussein, the president of the the president of Iraq. And uh, here they are, they're, they're going, the doctors are going through picking lice out of his hair. The guy stunk to high heaven, hadn't showered in weeks. Been living in a dirt hole in the ground. And then his own people hung him at the end of the trial. So much for his end, right? So there's been lots of Hamans. Alexander the Great, Jezebel, Marie Antoinette, Henry VIII, Slightly different script, but same story. Human arrogance is allowed to run. And uh, men are given some measure, women some measure of power, and God gives it to them for a while. And He'll sometimes lift them way up just so all the world can see Him fall. Imagine you're sitting there with Haman at this banquet listening to him talk about himself. What would you say? <laughs> Oh, it's been a good night. I'd leave. I don't want to listen to you. Or tell him, hey, dude, you're in for trouble, right? So he makes the gallows. It's ready by morning. And you think about it, Haman's wife and... Uh, we'll have to stop here. 
Haman's wife and friends, who are they really trying to help, you think, by the advice they gave? Were they really out for Haman's well-being? Or do you think they were sick of him sulking like a little kid and they wanted to pacify him to make their life easier? That's what it would have been. The irony is, <laughs> proud, self-seeking people tend to surround themselves with other proud, self-seeking people. They don't care about the rich guy. They care about his money. They care about the esteem that comes from being seen with him. They don't care about him. They just want what comes with it. All right, so as the sun goes down that evening, events reach their climax, and we have to stop there. Um, any other questions or comments before we break here? I love this part of the story, you know? I don't I want to rejoice in the guy being slaughtered, but it's hard not to just smile when you get to this part and watch this guy finally undone. And again, we have the privilege of reading it. We can just sit down and go through it, but we forget the months that intervene. The months of where is God? What, what is happening? The months of putting up with Haman, strutting around like a rooster, and uh, until God finally drew the net. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to have a hatred of pride, especially in ourself. We are very prone to it. Help us to recognize it and reject it. Thank you for your sovereign working in this book we're going through. Thank you that you keep your promises, and we thank you, Lord, that you are the God of the commonplace just as much as the cataclysmic. All things are under your control, and we thank you for that. Amen.